0: For those of you who are joining us both nationally and internationally, oh, welcome. I am Matthew Hart, the CEO for Longwoods, and uh, if you join us again, you'll notice I always ask people to reach out to me for any reason. Uh, you'll know that uh, you'll never know what kind of support we may be able to offer each other now or in the future. So feel free to email me at any time at m h a r t, so M at longwoods.com, or find me on LinkedIn. Enough for me. So uh, without any further delay, I'd like to hand the show over to Jennifer Zellmer. Jennifer. Thanks so much, Matt, and huge thanks to everyone for having joined us today. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I am coming to you today from the traditional unceded territory of the Al- Algonquin and peoples. peoples, and as I've learned more about the traditions of the peoples who've walked this land since the beginning, I've learned about the importance of gathering places, of exchange, of learning, and hopefully we can build just a little bit on those traditions today, even if in a very different way. You know, when Matt and I first started talking uh, about a breakfast with the Chiefs in the spring, we certainly didn't expect it would be bring your own Wi-Fi, bring your own coffee, uh, bring your own breakfast but uh, here we are, and uh, I'm really delighted to be joining today. As Matt said, there may not be a formal list of attendees uh, available to you, but if you're interested in joining, the chat's open, so feel free to introduce yourself there so people know who's online and can exchange, and please use the Q&As along the way. So that brings us to the focus of our conversation today, and let me just get to the slideshow, all good at uh, the now normal, transitions in health services during and beyond the pandemic. And as we all know, we've now reached, unfortunately, more than 100,000 cases of COVID-19 in Canada, and we're nearing 8,500 deaths. And never has it been clear that how we live, learn, work, shop, and play affects our health, that the actions we take each affect each other, that most public policies have health implications and that vulnerable people can be even more vulnerable in a pandemic unless we band together and you know it may seem a bit strange to say this right now amid some grim realities but there's also a growing stock of evidence-informed hope that's surfacing and i recognize that you may just have written me off for saying that because let's face it we've gotten really good at being skeptics But actually, the last few weeks have shown us that widespread change in Canada's health sector is not only possible, but it can happen fast. So what I'm asking for you today is to keep your cup of coffee for sure, but take off your skeptic's hat for now. Because no matter how tough it may feel to put more on our plates when we're already dealing with so much, or how hard it can seem to bust through the processes that are sometimes needed to get change off the ground, We've known for a long time that change is needed, and it starts with each of us. So if you're ready, let's go, and don't worry. You can put your skeptic hat back on in half an hour. So we need hope, but not naive hope. Some, including I'm sure some on the call today, are still focused on immediate outbreak response because you need to be. Others are entering a transition phase. And it's so tempting to be like the little kid in the back of the car and ask, are we there yet, are we there yet? But I don't think the real question is when will this end? The real question is how will we carry on? Because we've seen the pandemic magnify both strengths and gaps in care and never have resilient health systems that can respond dynamically to individual and community needs been more important. So I'd like us to think about where do we need to double down on good work that was already underway even pre-pandemic to improve care? Where do we need to fast forward and build on changes that were launched or accelerated by the pandemic? And where do we need to rewind and review responses that while they may have been well-intentioned, just aren't serving us well? In short, what should the evolving now normal look like as we go through the many transitions that we're likely to pass through in the pandemic? For this morning, I've chosen three areas to focus on that we all knew were important pre-pandemic and that have increased relevance now. The first, partnering with patients and the community. The mission statements of Canadian healthcare organizations are filled with promises to put patients first and to partner with their communities. And if we were in the room together, I'd ask you to raise your hands if this was true of your organization. Now, even though I can't see you today, I'm willing to bet that a sea of hands would be up if I could. And it's my view that in times of crisis, this philosophy needs to continue to hold true, even if the ways that it's implemented will change. This is an area where we absolutely need to double down. And indeed some jurisdictions, some organizations are doing that. They've actively involved patient and caregiver partners, virtually of course, in planning, policy, and decisions about care delivery since the pandemic began. But clearly that's not been the same everywhere. So take for example family presence policies. Over the last five years, thanks to Better Together and other initiatives, open family presence policies have become common in Canada's hospitals. By winter of 2020, pre-pandemic, about three quarters of hospitals had adopted accommodating visiting policies, up from about a third in 2015. But the doors slammed shut in March. Blanket visitor restrictions were implemented across Canada to reduce transmission of the virus and to protect the limited supply of personal protective equipment. The result? By mid-March to April, none of the hospitals in a follow-up study had accommodating visiting policies. While these policies were introduced with absolutely the best intent, we've seen that extended restrictions also bring their own risks as well as, in some cases, significant moral distress. For instance, studies show that the presence of essential family partners in care decreases anxiety during procedures, improves medication adherence, helps maintain cognitive function in older adults, and prevent falls. It can also contribute to improved care transitions, as well as reduced readmissions, and some family members also provide significant amounts of hands-on health and social care. As the pandemic evolves, organizations and jurisdictions are now beginning to revisit their family presence policies. And we recently convened a rapid response advisory group. Their report focuses on seven steps to guide policy reviews, including having patient and family caregiver partners at the table for those reviews, even if it's a virtual table. Distinguishing between family caregivers who are essential partners in care and casual visitors and considering a balanced harm reduction approach when implementing new policies. If you're interested in delving further, the data I cited in a set of resources on family presence policies are available now, and the advisory group's report will be out soon. And not just for me, but with me, is relevant also beyond family presence policies, of course. The pandemic has not affected us all equally. Kelly Brownville recently shared her insights on the importance of culturally safe practices during the pandemic. Her advice was clear. First, don't not start. While it can be tempting to focus only on core emergency response, culturally safe practices are critically important during the pandemic. For instance, Kelly described how physical distancing and travel restrictions can be triggering for people still coping with historical trauma. And the second part of her advice for those who have started was don't stop there's so much that we need to learn and unlearn and so much that needs to change as a result if you want to delve further in this area kelly's blog highlights a number of resources to help us on this journey and i'll be sharing all of these links with the slides at the end of the webinar like patient and community partnerships in care better care closer to home and community as a focus isn't Pre and post pandemic, in fact, eight in 10 Canadians agreed that where safe and appropriate health care should be provided in the community close to where patients live and be supported in homes rather than in hospitals or institutions. Think about how much easier it would be right now if you could access care closer to home and community, reducing the need for medical travel, whether that's on the TTC if you're in Toronto or public transit elsewhere, or travel much further afield, depending on where you live. Think about how much easier it would be if there was a made in your community health plan to strengthen community ties and address its unique needs, health and social needs in this time. Or if everyone was linked with a regular care team and could access high quality services virtually or physically when needed. And of course, that last area, of virtual care, is an area that seen fundamental change during the pandemic. So you could adapt this slide to the health sector, asking, you know, who's leading the digital transformation of the health sector? Is it Is it ministries? Is it health regions? Is it CIOs? Or has it been driven by necessity during the pandemic? And interestingly, it's not that public preferences have changed. In both February and June, InfoWay data show, sorry, this isn't InfoWay data, this is other survey data show, that three quarters of Canadians said that secure video visits with health professionals were important. And likewise, eight in 10 supported secure messaging. But what has changed is how often it happens. So these are the Infoway data. They show that last year, 80 to 90% of healthcare visits were in person, and that's halved during the pandemic. So the questions become how do we sustain the gains that have been made and what additional steps are needed to ensure that virtual care isn't just happening, but optimized. And that's not just a change in technology, but a fundamental change in the processes and culture of care, the how we do things around here. It's going to take action on governance and leadership, on supportive policies and infrastructure, on training, on workflow analysis and integration, and more. And reducing the physical risks associated with contact and care isn't just about video visits and messaging either. Here's five things to think about, only one of which, an important one, is optimizing virtual care. The first think choosing wisely, so delaying or cancelling low-value care and factoring into the value the risks of physical contact that exist right now. The second, enabling better self-management and stronger self-management. So one of the teams that we're working with through the Priority Health Innovation Challenge, for instance, has expanded uh, home ventilation services. So people who already have compromised respiratory systems aren't having to be in hospital as often for care. Of course, optimizing virtual care, we've talked about that, but also optimizing necessary in-person care. Thinking about new models of care, like paramedics delivering palliative care in the home that may reduce risks of physical contact. Thinking about, you know, so the classic yes in terms of not having crowded waiting rooms and having separate lanes for COVID and non-COVID care, but also unpacking care, which parts of it need to be physical and with whom, So for instance, if you might have to travel for specialty care, could you instead have the in-person component with primary care close to you connected to specialists via e-consult? So we're aiming not just for care closer to home and community, but also reducing future needs for in-person care as well, through prevention, through other approaches that set us on a different path for better, safer care that maintains essential non-COVID services Which is so important because of course people still have heart attacks people still have respiratory problems and other conditions but reduces the risk of physical contact third area we also need to reimagine better care in the third area i'm going to focus on this morning seniors care you don't need to persuade me of the importance of this area pre-pandemic cfhi was already working with more than 300 teams in long-term care in areas like person-centered care for people with dementia, embedding palliative approaches to care, and care transition. But these and many other challenges in the care of older adults have been put in stark relief during the pandemic. It was uh, in BC um, where the first death of someone living in long-term care occurred in mid-May, sorry, in in mid-March. And Between then and mid-May, almost 4,000 residents have died. Overall, about 8 in 10 of Canada's COVID-related deaths, that's the dots on this slide, are in long-term and residential care. and That's the highest rate among the countries studied by the International Long-Term Care Policy Network. Yes, even higher than the U.S., which is the last bar to the right on this Well, fortunately, most long-term care and retirement homes have not had an outbreak yet. These data and the many reports in the press, from the Canadian Armed Forces, from other sources, have highlighted the pandemic's absolutely devastating effects in these homes. So over the last few weeks, we've been speaking with dozens of people who have expertise in this area, from family partners to healthcare leaders, about both what happened and also where do we go next. Sometimes those conversations were grim. We talked with people who've worked in a number of homes who had major outbreaks and looked for some of the similar patterns, many of which did exist. But we also heard about promising practices that could help us to reduce the risk of future outbreaks or mitigate their effects where they occurred. We don't have time to go through them all today, but to pick just a few, every home should know where it can turn to for help and have surge capacity arrangements in place. If 60% of your staff become infected, which happened in some homes, it's just not realistic that a home will be able to manage an outbreak on its own. We also heard about creative public health preparation and support. So, for example, tabletop simulations that brought together public health, long-term care, hospitals, and others to work through how they would work in the context of a pandemic. What would happen then? We heard about the critical importance of testing, particularly for asymptomatic cases. And some recent examples where um, outbreaks have been able to be contained at one staff member because they were tested, found to be uh, positive but asymptomatic, and then they were able to isolate at home. We also heard about new models of care, like expanded home care, uh, video visits, other approaches for bringing care needed into the home. And, you know, just to give one final example, squeeze one in, uh, we heard about communities with managed entry, so whether they're island communities or communities that are more uh, rural or remote, who've been uh, doing things like putting people up in hotels to support self-isolation or places like La Loche in Saskatchewan, uh, remote communities who had a focused response to support local capacity when they did have an If you want to do more or know more in this area, there's a a webinar in the LALOCHE response next week, and they're in the process of validating a summary of what we heard from all the interviews, so more to come soon. We're also looking at supports to help those who wish to move ahead quickly to spread and scale promising practices, including when you can jump on now if you're interested too, so the Priority Health Innovation Challenge, focusing on a number of areas in uh, home and community care and also in mental health and substance use. So whether it's in these three areas or others, we've seen that the pandemic has brought significant rapid change in domains where there's been a push for transformation for some time. We need to be open and honest about what hasn't worked well, but we also need to identify, sustain and scale the best innovations that emerged, because learning and adapting is at the heart of what we do. So that brings me to a thank you and a reminder. A huge thank you to everyone, many of whose names we'll never know, who've worked so hard over the past many years to make sure that we're in a better position to respond to the pandemic now than we would otherwise have been. And of course, a shout out and a thank you to all those who've jumped in to do what was needed for immediate pandemic response. And let's take a minute to acknowledge that many are tired right now. Some are struggling, and it's okay not to be okay. Now, not a lot of us are traveling on planes right now, so it's probably up to me to remind us all to put on our own oxygen mask first, and then step up where we can, linking hands with each other virtually, of course. So now what? What does that now normal look like? So back to my opening question about how do we carry on, the answer going forward can't just be about individual heroes, as important as that has been in the first wave of pandemic response. It must absolutely also be about how do we change systems of care for everyone. COVID-19 has taught us anything. It's that we can't put off working today on the improvements we'll need for tomorrow. So I invite to ask you to ask yourself, as I'm asking myself, where will you double down accelerate or rewind to reduce the likelihood of a second wave to mitigate its effects or to make care better in the longer term because the only way out is through and if you're interested in working in any of the three areas that i spoke with today i'll be posting these slides with resources that i've mentioned during the talk and i hope you find them useful and we've committed to more to come living the goal of more improvement with and for more people that last we're our partners at the Canadian Patient Safety Institute with whom we're on the path to amalgamation. And at the same time, it's a cliche now of way too many corporate ads, but we are in this together. And I invite you to join with your colleagues on this journey to share promising practices and resources. You can do them in the chat, you can do them more generally uh, to help us on this path. And to get to the better care that Canadians want and deserve. Let's make that collective commitment, exchange, and impact part of the now normal, too. Thank you so much for uh, joining today's webinar, and that's I'm gonna stop sharing the formal presentation so uh, that we can see each other again, and have a quick look down at the uh, Q&A and the chat. So, uh, first question, A couple series of questions actually around how can patient partners help organizations move forward and are there national recommendations about engagement that we can push for more meaningful engagement? So, so many ways, right? All the way from we're seeing patient partners being engaged in policy work in terms of the pandemic, and also in decisions about direct care. So there's a whole spectrum of ways and opportunities for engagement. I'd invite you to look at, there's been a series of webinars on patient and family engagement and partnership in the time of pandemic uh, that have been held. And one of those links is in um, the set of links that I'll be circulating with the slides from the webinar. And so that's a great place to start. It'll also connect you with a whole network of people both across the country and globally who are interested in similar questions um, because from that, from that collective action comes strength. And in addition, you'll see a set of resources uh, from Better Together, from other places, including um, from the Diversity Learning Exchange, which looked at uh, one of the other questions in terms of improving diversity engagement, how can we do some of those things? Um, that will make a difference in terms of making sure that the voices of engagement look like and sound like the voices of Canada. So, uh, other questions around um, thoughts about digital equity imperative as a result of uh, the necessary move to digital service delivery. We're seeing many left behind due to financial language, internet access, rural remote barriers, so important absolutely important. I think about this in a couple of ways, though. You know, I think um, the, the technology itself can either enhance equity or create barriers. I'll give you an example from my personal experience. A number of years ago, I lived in Denmark, where they were frankly ahead on virtual care. And it was so much easier for me to connect with my family practice online than it was in person, because I could take my time, okay, at that point, Google Translate didn't exist, so I was using my dictionary, particularly at the beginning, to type the messages and the questions that I had, and I could use that time to translate on the way back too. And so there are ways that the technology can actually enhance access and reduce barriers, but to the point that you made, there are also definite challenges. And one of the ones we've heard about a lot from our partners in rural and, and remote communities is just the sheer connectivity. And that's a fundamental challenge that we need to address at the base. And also need to think about creative options. You know, I've seen some surfacing recently around libraries may be closed and libraries are absolutely a place where many people have been able to access um, digital services, but they've kept their Wi-Fi on so that you can actually access that in a physically distanced way around the library. So how do we be creative about some of those options? Where do we need to provide tools? When do they become assistive devices that we start thinking about in terms of access in different ways? So those are some of the examples. Um, I particularly love the question. I hope Reza somebody can answer your question about how to wear the mask without having your glasses fog up. Um, but that unfortunately, I can't answer that question. Maybe somebody else can in the chat. We're all in this together, so maybe we could support each other on that way. Um, so a couple of other questions as I go up the chat. Um, uh, You're absolutely right, Kathy. that there is a difference in terms of uh, long-term care and retirement homes. And we need to think about each of these settings and other congregate living settings and the specific circumstances that apply. And how do we uh, manage and support those changes as well? Um, Also important, oh look, Raisin, you got an answer. Excellent. Thank you so much to the global community for contributing to answering our questions this morning in the chat. Um, so talking about lab test results, there was also a comment there. And you know, it's it's been interesting to see how with lab test results, many jurisdictions are now increasing, something that was happening in some places pre-pandemic, but it's definitely increased, direct access for patients online to their lab test results. So that test result is available. You see it there's no you know have you seen it have you not seen it any of those kind of things and how can we get those results more quickly and I think those are good examples of things that you know we may not always think of the sort of image of virtual care in the pandemic as the video visit and that may actually in fact, in most places where virtual care is very common, it is not the most common mode of virtual care. It is things like secure messaging, like online access to lab results, like online access to your own health information, um, that and complementing other sources as well. Sometimes, um, particularly in communities where there may be connectivity problems, there is no substitute for being able to pick up a phone. And being able to do that in a way that recognizes that You know, not everybody has access to mobile phones, to other means of calling, and how do we start solving some of those critical gaps as well? Um, So I think we've got time for one last question. Um, And the one question uh, early on that came up um, was around how do we support primary care? And, you know, this has been such an interesting um, set of changes, right? And an area where we've got so many different experiments across the country. What combination of virtual care and in-person care is going to matter? And it's not going to be the same. Community by community, people by people, that will need to change. And it may well change in the course of the pandemic as well. You know, right now we're talking a lot about reopening but really isn't it more important to talk about transitions because we will likely have multiple transitions in the course of the next months and beyond. So with that, I think we're uh, hitting the end of our time together. Just wanted to huge thank you to uh, everyone for having joined us today. Please keep adding uh, comments and suggestions as we continue this conversation. Uh, right at the end, I'll be uh, tweeting out my slides. If you're interested in accessing them, you can just reply to that with other resources and suggestions that you may have along the way. And so we can continue this dialogue and sharing together. With that, Matt, thanks and back to you. Thank you, Jennifer, and thank you to everybody for joining us this morning. Uh, I think it was a fantastic conversation. Uh, this will be our last event for uh, this, until the end of the summer, so we will be back in September as we learn about the uh, the new norms. Uh, So have a wonderful summer and look forward to seeing everybody in the future. Take care